Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Don't Look Back, and the author is Phil Servery, and Phil joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Phil. Hello, how are you today? Great to have you with us, and a a very insightful book. You say this, because this is about children who are put up for adoption and have to go to the orphanage uh, back in the, I guess, the 50s. where this is focused on, but I don't know how much that goes on today. I guess there still are orphanages. Uh, we'll talk about uh, your view of all that and your concerns. Uh, you say this, Curtis, which is the main character, Curtis is one of six children whose father recently passed away and whose mother could no longer take care of them. His mother makes a heartbreaking decision to put the four youngest children up for adoption, meaning Curtis is one of them. And how old is Curtis? Curtis is about three and a half years old. Three and a half, a little guy. Uh, almost four, a little guy, yeah. Yeah, a little guy. I've got grandkids that old now, and that, that's a, I can't even imagine uh, what a heartbreaking decision his mom had to make. And But she made it for whatever reasons. Uh, couldn't take care of the, the big family, but... Let's get, first of all, before we get into the details of your great book, let's find out about you, Phil. Tell us about a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book. Well, we'll start with a little bit about me. Um, I've been in education for a long time, and I've retired since. Um, I was a fifth-grade teacher and uh, for 18 years and administrator the rest of the time. And uh, so it's been, it locks in very well with, with what I do, and uh it's uh, important to know, you know that you have the kind of background that helps you write something like this because it's kind of a it's an emotional piece as well. So, but uh, in any case, um, as far as why I wrote the book or how I got started on it, that's an interesting point because I met with my father about a year ago, my adopted father, and we sat down and we talked, and he's going into a home, and so he had some things he wanted to give me. So, but anyway, I am. Um, we were on, we, my wife Penny and I were on our way home, and I got this rush of emotions about the day he and my mother adopted me. And it was a topic of discussion for the most part, all the way home. And, uh, I've, I've, you know, I've really had the urge at that point to put it to print, or put it down on paper. And with Penny's help, I began to write, Don't Look Back. Well, and that's what makes this book so unique because of your experiences. That is true. Um, it was different. It's been kind of a difficult thing to write about at times because because of the emotional parts of it. I'll tell you a short little story where I had a coffee house at a church, and I was I had completed the rough draft of it, if you will, and shared that with that coffee house group, which was just about 30 people, adults and kids mixed together. The reaction was just unbelievable. I, I had no intent of making people upset. 
But for some reason, they got into it emotionally, and uh, one person really got into it emotionally, and, and and it kind of strikes a nerve with people, and it's why I thought it was important to put it put it down on paper and try to write it and share it with with, with other kids who might learn from it. What age group is uh, best for your book? The age group for this book is seven nine year olds, but I, uh, you know, since I'm this is my comfort zone as a fifth grade teacher. That's why I, I developed it that way. But I've also found that it, it's it's good for parents to share with their child. It, because it is an emotional book, it's nice for them to share that with them. If they can read to their child or whatever they can do, have an opportunity to sit down and look at the book together. It really, And the parents will enjoy the book as well because I've had people tell me that. So, And, of course, with a child's book... Uh, pictures, illustrations are very critical, and these are just tremendous. Yes, uh, the um, art person, uh, Mr. Pellerin, did a very nice job. I have to give credit to my wife, Penny, because she was the one who came up with the ideas for the artist to, to put together in a picture or an image, if you will. And uh, she deserves a lot of credit as well. I'd like to thank her for that. Well, when a young boy, so young like Curtis, uh, when 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 you find out as a young boy or girl that your mother is putting you up for adoption, uh, the emotions must be all over the place. Yes, the most the most the most difficult one was fear. <laughs> when when you go through this, the fear of not knowing where you're going to end up what's going to happen to you, who you're going to meet, whether you're going to have enough to eat, whether or not you're going to make friends, where are you going to sleep, is it going to be dark? I mean, there's all kinds of things that go through your head. And and it's tough. It's tough. And it's tough on children who go through this, especially the older they are. They, it is a very difficult emotional time for a child to have to go through. And I give a lot of credit all those parents out there who have adopted children because it's tough for them to adjust to this as well. But as a kid in an orphanage, you know, one other thing you don't get is, is love. You don't get to touch and feely, huggy things that mom and dad could give you. And that means a lot to kids and for obvious reasons. So they need that unconditional love. That's one of the messages in your book, how critical that is. Yes, it is. Unconditional love is, that's a term I even use in the book, and I use that because it really dictates to to people um, that it's love, no matter what they bring to the table, what a child's attributes are, whatever. It's what they bring to the table, and you accept the child, whether they're short, they speak very little, they're fearful, whatever, whatever little Anyone goes that they, that may not make them perfect. You have to love them in spite of all those things. And it had, <clears throat> and of course with Curtis, he had a lot of strikes against him anyway. But finally, two special people did come along and adopt him. It takes time, and as a kid, it seems like forever because time moves very slowly. When you get my age, <laughs> it moves a lot faster. But uh, in any case, that that's that's the importance of unconditional love. It's something that you just you can't get anywhere except with mom and dad, or mom or dad, however it goes. 
You describe Curtis, shy little boy, of course, uh, a very painful separation from his family, and he spends time in various orphanages. So is, is this kind of follow him through some different stages of his life? Uh, yes, to some degree, but it, it, finally, it flows from one segment of his time to another, from one orphanage to another. And it's very uneventful, and, and there isn't much change in, in from one place to the next, really, other than the fear of what's going to be next. That is what children have to adjust to. And it's true today with foster families and everything else like that. You have children who are who move from one foster home to the next, and, and these transitions can be difficult. But in an orphanage, for the most part, to, to me, it was just like the same thing again, except to, when I got to the last one. And then things began to change a little bit. Now, Curtis, he has a, a really tough experience at Christmas time. Tell tell us about that. Yes, he arrives in the last orphanage two days before Christmas, and what occurs? He gets in. They they get in the room, and he you know he's, he's all situated in there with what little bit of he has, and then. They have a meeting, I don't know, it's not a meeting, but they have a, a group, if you will, that gets together on Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, they're read a Christmas story. They're all sitting there in front of everyone, like pretzel style, like they do today in classes and stuff. And so they're given an opportunity to go under the tree, pick up a, pick up a uh, gift, if you will, and then walk back down, and it's supposed to have been done in an orderly fashion. Well, <laughs> if you can imagine, at Christmas time, it's difficult to do anything in an organized fashion with 12, 13 kids. But what happened was, because I was so shy, and because Curtis was so little, he didn't push his way through or anything like that. He kind of, he kind of hid like in a corner and just waited. And then everybody went and got their gifts, and there's paper and boxes being thrown around everywhere. He goes and looks for a gift, and there's no gift there for him. And what had happened was, I realize now that they did not take into consideration, they being the staff of the orphanage, didn't take into consideration there was an extra kid at that time and forgot to put an extra gift in the, in the room. But nobody found out because Curtis picked a nice red and gold, well, a red box with a gold ribbon, played with that and some other boxes, and kept the red box. And to this day, I don't know why I did that, but I did it. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> hmm. um, but it was neat. It was neat, and I was satisfied with that. You know, and sometimes, and that's another message to try to get across to kids, is sometimes you got to be satisfied with what you have and be thankful for what you have because it could really be a whole lot worse. Now, you see your book, A Real Aid to Teachers in Elementary Schools uh, to uh, help them uh, with this issue. Now, how would this help a teacher? Well, one quality you find in a good teacher in an elementary school is their ability to build relationships with each other and with students and better understand what issues each child brings to the classroom because every child is different. And, and it's good to have a little bit of background about children so when you're working with them, you, you can understand where they're coming from. 
that after reading Don't Look Back, the teacher could draw out a child's feelings and begin to know know them a little better, and a simple chart, and teachers do this all the time, to compare and contrast, a simple chart comparing and contrasting their life with Curtis's should reveal a lot about each student, and it really, it really does. And it's good to have that information because later on in the year something might happen, and you'll have a feel for what their reaction is going to be, and, and, and the same is true with uh, what their abilities are. And so you, you get a better feel for the child, and that's, that's what makes a good teacher, I think, is knowing, knowing the children. You have to know the children. You have to know the curriculum and the material as well. Don't get me wrong. But the, the kids come first. And I had a person teach me that a long time ago. Kids come first. And uh, that was one of my first principles. And she made it really, really emphatic. And it's one of those things I've always taken with me. Why did you include Curtis's actual certificate of adoption in the book? Okay, the certificate of adoption, I put that in there for a couple of reasons. Um, the first was to actually see what a certificate of adoption looks like. And uh, I placed it there so the kids could actually see what a legal document looks like. Because a lot of kids don't know. And, and especially back in 1959, because they're a little different looking. Then they could also look at that information and discuss what's in there. What are the important points that are, that are, that are made in that? What, what, what kinds of things can you learn from looking at it? One of the big things is the, the seal. Why is that seal there, the official seal? Uh, and then finally, one of the last things, which I found interesting too, was the fact that the type is in reverse to today. It would be interesting to see what the kids thought were on that, to ask them, well, what do you think of this type? have white letters and black background. Anyhow. Um, so that's why I put that in there. It's, it's really another thought-provoking item for kids to analyze, check out, and see what, what they can discover from it. We've been listening to Phil Servery. He is the author of his book, Don't Look Back. Phil, tell us how to get your book. Well, I know you can get it on Exlibris, and I believe Amazon um, as well. Barnes and Noble, the regular standard ones online that you you can uh, you can go there and pick them up as well. Uh, I do know it's going to be released also as an ebook eventually, uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So that uh, there and they are the main ways to go about finding a book, if you will, online would be easier probably, but um, it'll be available at bookstores as well eventually. Phil, thank you for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, too. It's been very, very uh, rewarding for me to have this opportunity and all the folks involved. And uh, thanks for joining us. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. 
You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. Devan will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirit Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Afghanistan, The Perfect Failure, a war doomed by the coalition strategies, policies, and political correctness. And the author is John L. Cook, and John joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, John. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Well, great to have you with us. I should uh, respectfully call you Colonel Cook, and you'll tell us why in a moment. <laughs> but uh, you have... John will, John will do just fine. Well, exactly. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, you've been involved in the military, been in Afghanistan, and we'll learn about those details in a moment. But let me read what you've written about this book, Afghanistan, The Perfect Failure. You say this. Afghanistan has cost America far too many lives, and the killing of Americans must stop. There is nothing worth this kind of sacrifice in the hopes that we have of achieving. You also say this work takes the reader from the very beginning of our involvement there, the defeat of the Taliban in late 2001 up to the present day. It explains why all the major objectives have failed and why it is now impossible to salvage anything that justifies to lo- justifies the loss on so many American lives. Well, I think that is uh, a very confusing issue to most Americans. I think we all have this gut feeling, John, that we shouldn't be there. Uh, we do, I think, and one of the reasons I went was I'd spent over two years in Vietnam as an advisor, and so I wanted to see what the difference was, because both of these are third, third world countries fighting an insurgency. So I had a very different feel about uh, Vietnam, because I wrote one of the first books about the Phoenix program there, and I had a very positive experience and a very positive outlook, because Vietnam, we clearly identified the enemy and we went there, and we were successful. Of course, uh, the invasion in 
1975, when uh, Gerald Ford became president, we simply abdicated and kind of left them to their own mercy. Afghanistan was supposed to be sort of the same kind of thing, where a proud people were fighting for their independence. But after four and a half years there, where I was a senior advisor to the Ministry of the Interior, it became obvious that there was no way we could achieve the goals we wanted to in Afghanistan because, first of all, the strategy was all wrong. Uh, we underestimated the um, effect and the uh, influence of Islam. Uh, we refused to uh, hold President Karzai accountable for um, any of the failures of his own government, and we simply lost our way. So. What the book does is it, it, it covers all of these um, topics, the treatment of women, the corruption, the drugs, uh, the fact that the Afghan security forces uh, refused to fight. All of them come to one conclusion that, um, that we're never going to achieve what we want to and we need to, we need to leave and we need to leave now. And we don't seem to learn from history. Russia tried this, and after 10 years, they got out. They were there for 10 years, from 79 to 89, and they lost 15,000 uh, killed, 50,000 wounded. Yes, we should have looked at uh, what the uh, Russian experience was there before we decided to get involved in this nation-building exercise, which was actually doomed from the very beginning. I think one of the most alarming uh, uh, revelations that you give to us is concerning the opium trade out of Afghanistan, the, the poppy uh, production. Uh, it's, it's still flourishing. It is the, the number one, isn't it, the number one industry in Afghanistan? Afghanistan it produces 97% of the world's uh, opium, and um, it is a major part of their economy. The irony is that under Afghan law, production, distribution, uh, transporting uh, narcotics is, is a very, very serious offense. And one of the things that this administration has done, which is unforgivable, is they've said, we're not going to try to eradicate the poppies. We're going to our policy will be to interdict them. Now, let me just take a minute and explain uh, how our policy is there now. You've got half a million acres of poppies growing in Helmand and Kandahar province. Now, what Karzai has said is, you know, the poppy farmers uh, are very poor people, and they need to make a living. So our policy now is let the poppy uh, farmers grow the opium, sell it to the uh, drug dealers, and then when the drug dealers try to make it to the border, we're going to intercept them. And therefore, everybody wins. We uh, keep the drugs from leaving the country, and the poppy farmers get, um, get their money. Now, the only way this would make sense is some Hollywood screenwriter <laughs> who's high on heroin yeah. coming up with this policy, but this is actually Goodness. the U.S government's current policy, we have quit. We have abandoned any effort to eradicate the drug. So right away, when you have this situation where we're supposed to be building up respect for the rule of law over there, we are turning a very blind eye 
to a interlocking criminal enterprise. And it's even worse than that because the Taliban get a big cut out of the drug trade. It's estimated that some $300 million a year from the drug trade goes to the Taliban. So without the drug money going to the Taliban, they would not be able to continue um, operations and buying equipment and weapons and things like that. So I spend a whole chapter talking about that, as, as bizarre as it is. Now, of course, I realize Americans are saying, well, of course you're, out, you're over there trying to destroy the drug trade, right? No, we're not. We, we quit that. We, we gave up on that three years ago when uh, we got uh, Richard Holbrook as the new uh, Undersecretary of State who was responsible for that part of the country. That's, that's just one of the uh, things where it's a perfect failure because we've abdicated on so many of those things. And one of the reasons we went there was the mistreatment of women. Has that changed at all? The third... Uh, Big two reasons that we went to Afghanistan, and they were both good reasons, by the way, was to topple the Taliban regime and drive out al-Qaeda. Well, we did that uh, in short order in about three or four months. By early uh, 2002, the Taliban were no longer in power. Uh, Al-Qaeda was on the run. And President Bush said that uh, with the toppling of the Taliban, the women in Afghanistan would now have their rights restored and, and all of that was good, because that was one of the biggest complaints coming out of Afghanistan uh, prior to 9-11 was how the Taliban treat the women. The reality is the women are not much better off today than they were then. Even though the Constitution, which is a well-written Constitution, and it says that uh, there's good equality and there will be no distinction made between uh, male and females and all of that it's a beautiful constitution however article three is the poison pill in there article three is probably the shortest article in the whole constitution and it says basically this nothing in this constitution will contradict the holy laws of islam now what that really means is anytime they want to pull out sharia law to trump the um, secular law, that's what happens. So, so it doesn't really matter what you write as a constitution. You still have Sharia law. You, ha you exactly. have the, that, 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 as you say, that's number one priority in, in the Islam faith. And, and the other thing about the law is that the corruption is so um, widespread that um, there's really not much, if, if you're charged with a major crime in Afghanistan and you uh, are a wealthy man, um, you just bribe the judge, you know. And people talk about, well, you know, we, we want to uh, stop the corruption and we are tired of everybody talking about how corrupt it is. Well, the reality is there's a lot of people in jail in Afghanistan, but no wealthy people are in jail because if you're wealthy, you don't go to jail. You simply buy a judge. Well, and then we have the forces, the so-called friendly forces, turning on our own American soldiers, right? I mean, we've had, just lately in the news, we've heard about yeah. uh, the attacks on American soldiers by the Afghan Inside military. Inside yeah. attacks. And, 
and that's been going on for a while, and it's going to get much worse, and there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, um, if you look at the Afghan National Security Forces, and this is one of the things that um, the, the average American is going to find shocking, is there is no draft in Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is supposed to be a country struggling for its very survival, but the government and Karzai have not seen the necessity of drafting their own citizens to save the country. Now, what that means is the best and the brightest in Afghanistan, the ones who are literate and educated, have no fear of ever being um, conscripted into the defense of the country. As a result of that, recruiters are forced to go out and sign up anybody with the pulse to come into the national police and the Afghan army. The attrition rate in some of these units is as high as 70%. There's no um, penalty for you if you just walk off. So you'll go out and you'll sign up a policeman. He'll draw a couple of paychecks. He'll walk off. And there's no retribution for that because there's, there's no draft. There's no retribution. So what happens is you've got this continuous effort of trying to fill the ranks with illiteracy running 70%, 75%. Drug uh, use, probably 15 to 20% don't make it because of that. The point I'm making is this is a perfect breeding ground for the Taliban to put their people into those forces. So you say, okay, they're looking for anybody. The Taliban puts up some of their guys and say, you allow yourself to be recruited. Uh, you will be trained. You will be equipped. You'll be given a uniform. And when we need you, we will have you turn on the coalition and the Afghan security forces. So when you understand the underpinnings of the situation, it's not surprising that you're going to have these insider attacks or these so-called uh, uh, green on blue attacks, and they're, and they're going to continue. And what it does is it destroys what little unit cohesion there is. And when you have uh, these kind of attacks on the coalition, remember the irony is, Right now, we're trying to get them to stand up so we can stand down. Well, it's driven such a wedge between the coalition trainers and the Afghan forces that uh, you're constantly watching your back instead of trying to train the Afghans. And then there's not much of any nationalistic feeling anyway in the country. The, really, the country is just made up of tribes, right? Exactly right. And that's one of the biggest problems is that uh, let's take that for just a second. The largest tribe is the Pashtuns. They make up probably 42, 43% of the population. And they inhabit the southern and eastern uh, region of Afghanistan, right where the fighting is the fiercest. Um, about 90 to 95% of the Taliban belong to the Pashtun tribe. Hamad Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, is a Pashtun. Most of his government is Pashtun. So you could say that the war in Afghanistan, for all practical purposes, is the Pashtun War. This is just one great big tribe fighting among itself. And um, when you understand that you have so many Pashtuns in the government and so many Pashtuns in the Taliban, you kind of get the feeling that this is not going to go well. Because tribal uh, loyalty will pretty much trump a sense of nationalism 
every time. Well, in just uh, about a minute left, John, uh, one of the reasons this book is so important and so effective is because of of your involvement there. You spent four and a half years in Afghanistan. Uh, you mentioned that before, uh, but that really you come at this from an inside point of view. Uh, that's true, and I'm spent a lot of time. I understand counterinsurgency, counterterror operations. Uh, I spent 20 years as an intelligence um, officer for human human intelligence. So I know the internal workings of um, what happens uh, when one country or one force tries to take over another country. So I went there to see, and, and that's what I saw. And just one final point before we go is that the cost of this war is what's the most troubling thing to me. And I'm not talking about the dollar cost because dollars are fungible. We've been pumping billions down third world rat holes forever, and we'll keep doing that. But we've lost over 2,000 Americans there for really no defensible reason. And every time we lose one more, that's just one more immoral act that we've allowed to happen. And I'm far from what you would call a pacifist, but the main thrust I want to make is that we got to get out now. There's nothing that's going to be achieved. Because there's one thing we can count on. The longer we stay, the more American soldiers will be killed. Absolutely. There are kids in high school right now who will die in Afghanistan next summer. And that, you know, should be a sobering thought for anyone who's seriously concerned about what's going on there. We've been listening to John L. Cook. He is the author of his book, Afghanistan, The Perfect Failure, a war doomed by the coalition's strategies, policies, and political correctness. John, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on all uh, web uh, uh, booksellers on the web, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's also available in the ebook version, which I find is the way I think a lot of the publishing world is going now. So simply go on to Amazon or whatever your favorite bookseller is and type in Afghanistan, the perfect failure, and it comes up. Thank you, John, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thanks, Steve. Good talking to you, and I hope to do this again. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on Toginet.com. 
Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Togginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 1963, A Landmark Year in St. Martin, A Retrospective Look. And the author is Daniela Jeffrey, and Daniela joins us from St. Martin. Hello, Daniela. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Great to have you with us. Now, this book is, well, it's kind of like it's like you say, a retrospective look. We go back to 1963, the beginning of the tourism uh, industry on the island of St. Martin, and and of course, uh, you know, that was a transition year, as you put it, between an agricultural rural economy and yeah. a commercial to the commercial tourist oriented economy. So that was a very important year in the history of this beautiful island. Yes, very much so. It was a very important year. And uh, the importance is that that is the year when the whole island was electrify. Before that, everybody had their lamps, kerosene lamps, and anything else without electricity. Well, that, so is, a, that is a big year. <laughs> yes, it yes. is a big year, and it is also a year when the first terminal of the International Airport was built. So, obviously, uh, opening the door to tourism. Yes. Yes. Opening the door to the development of the following years. Well, before we go on to talk more about your book, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to publish your book. Okay, uh, as, you, as I just told you, I, I, I was born on the island of St. Martin, but I left very early um, because my, my parents sent me to school in, on the island of Guadeloupe, which is about an hour uh, by plane and at a boarding school, and uh, I did all my primary, secondary education on the island of Guadeloupe. And uh, after that, I went to Paris to study uh, language, and especially English language, to become a teacher of, of English. And uh, from there, I went to Madagascar, um, and I lived there for nine years. I had started my family there, and I had two children. So all this time, I was just be coming for holidays, for vacation, to St. Martin, which means that I did not have the direct contact with my island during those days. And when I came back, I noticed that something was lacking, was research in the history of the island. And that is what I started to do. I started to record all the old people uh, finding out how uh, it used to be before, 
because if we had histories about the facts and what government generally record, we didn't have the, the real history of the people themselves. So that is what, why I started to do, because for me it was lacking. Being away for so long, being in contact with people of other cultures, nationalities uh, of bigger countries, because my island is just a little dot on the map. Well, uh, I, I saw how how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to uh, read about your, your, your country and so on, and we didn't add that element. And that is what prompted me, I see. Although I didn't study history at the university, I studied language, but I said I have to do something in order to bring out the, con the history of the country, both for, 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 for the people themselves, and also for all those who will be coming and visiting, that the people of the, 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 the island would be able to speak about the history of their country. So, so that, that is my main purpose. So help us in our mind's eye understand where St. Martin is located. We have Cuba, and then what? We have Haiti, Dominican yes, Republic. Haiti, we have Puerto Rico, and then you come down to the Virgin Islands, and we are just below the Virgin Islands. Okay. Right, we have the Virgin Islands, and we have a very small island, also Anguilla, and and we are just below the Virgin Islands, Saint Croix, the Virgin, uh, American Virgin Islands, and the British Virgin Islands, just so, below that. So back in 1963, what was the population? The population was about uh, in 1963 was about five thousand, uh, five thousand, four thousand people on the French side. Uh, a little less on the dirt side, um, and uh, that's what it was. I mean, people used to pass by, but there, there was just local hotels. And, of course, it started, the tourism started on the dirt side with the local hotels. And in 1954, we had the first international hotel, which is Little Bay Hotel, which is still there, and uh, that was it. You didn't have, like it is today, all over the place, restaurants and all of that. And therefore, the people participated a lot in receiving the, the first tourists of those days. And a reception and, uh, were, were held at people's homes. And the tourists were invited, were invited guests. They had a very, very close relationship also with the with the, the taxi drivers. And the taxi drivers became the friends of those first tourists. So it was a very, very uh, intimate relationship between the tourists and and uh, the first tourists and 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 the, the native people of the island. And the island being so beautiful, we got back a lot of uh, feedback letters from them, and uh, we you can find some of those uh, letters to the editor in my in my book, uh, where uh, they um they are telling us. Uh, not to go too fast, which I don't think we heed that uh, that uh, admonishing uh, statement. Don't go too fast. But uh, th this is how Saint Martin people got to know that their country was so beautiful. Because if you have that beauty every day, you practically don't pay very much attention. But if other people come from away and start telling you how beautiful your country, then you understand why. And tourism started at that uh, at that moment uh, with a few Americans that came, pioneers that came and built hotels and and and, and small hotels though, and and 
uh, private people, not yet big companies, you know, and, and that is how it started. And that the book relates that very beginning of the closeness between the natives and the tourists. So was there pressure to do this? Did the, uh, the, the St. Martin people, were they for it? Uh, I mean, what, how did this all come about, uh, that trish, transitional they, they were for year? It because, you know, it was a happy type of people. It was a people that didn't suffer much from colonialism because although the country was divided between French and Dutch, we didn't have a colonial system implanted on the island. The, 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 the island natives, after the abolitions of slavery, had developed their own way, way of life, their own lifestyle, and, and their own traditions and culture uh, that was a little away from any colonial domination. So it was a happy type of people that during the, the 20th century, when there was not enough for everybody on the island, there, there, there was a very uh, wide movement of uh, migration of the St. Martiners to the Caribbean and also to the United States. So, in other words, uh, it was a sleepy little island for quite some time until uh, 1939 and after after the World War, the, the, the expansion started with the... Because the... the, the let us say the grandparent of our of, of our airport was an American base that were opened during the for the Second World War in order to protect the island against the German submarines that were roaming the Caribbean at that time. So this is how it started. So from from the American base, it became the first hotel the first uh, airport, the first terminal that were constructed in 1963. So everything is tied in into the whole history. And so the people are a very happy people. They are very hospitable, and they were willing to share their lifestyle with other people. So they fit in. The, their way of life fit into the uh, atmosphere of a touristic island. Well, it sounds just a remarkable time in the history of, of this beautiful island and having the people to be so willing to uh, realize the importance of bringing foreigners in and letting them enjoy the island and bringing, like you were saying, they brought them right into their homes. Yes. My yes. goodness. Well, the book is all about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. Now, and they, they were the first people who called us the friendly island, and up to ah. now it is the 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 natural slogan for the island, the mm -hmm. friendly island. Mm -hmm. And you know who was friendly? Well, the people. It's not the sea, the sand, and the sun. It's the people that were friendly. Yes. And we're trying to keep it up up to this day. Now, what about the challenges faced by, you know, the global financial crisis? What's happening? Well, you know, uh, it is uh, practically, it, it is not our first one. We had a first one in the 90s with the Gulf War where the decrease of uh, the arrival of American tourism because most of the tourists that we get come from the United States, 90%. And therefore, uh, we are a little bit accustomed of uh, world crisis. Uh, we, we, we know we are a very resilient type of people and we always survive. And of course, uh, we have, we are suffering, we are suffering still 
from the arrival, uh, from a decrease in the arrival of tourism. But they still come. <laughs> they still come and keep us uh, surviving, keep at least the tourist industry going. It didn't, it slowed down, but it didn't stop anything. Now, do you also talk about the constitutional development of uh, both sides? Uh, not in the book. Not okay. in the book. The book is a very, very uh, uh, pastoral book talking about the tradition of the people uh, during that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not dealing at all with any political aspect of it. Now, tell us about all the photographs. Oh, the photographs depicts aspect of the island during those years, most of them. How it was, it depicts also aspects of how the people used to live. So you have photographs with the old-time uh, coal pots and the iron, uh, to, to iron the clothes and the lamps and how the people used to wash their clothes and how they used to cook on, with coal. Uh, those are uh, the type of pictures, the old-time buildings, uh, the, um, the, 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 the island, the, because, you know, we had salt ponds, and we used to produce salt earlier, but you still have pictures of them, those things uh, in the book. How uh, the first hotels, you have pictures of that. How the, the two main cities, Marigot and Phillipsburg, used to be, there have been for the extension of uh, the two main um, capitals. There have been a lot of filling of the ponds because generally the capitals are between sea and pond. So it is a very watery type of island. You have a lot of watery areas. So you have the watery areas, the hills, the valleys, and it is a very, very diverse uh, diverse natural environment. So, and and you see the the, the cars of the days of the sixties, uh, the people, the the nature itself, which is much less uh, congested than it is today. There is not as much buildings, and and so on. And and it gives you a very beautiful atmosphere of what it used to be, how it started. Um, I emphasize also on the people. So we, I have a lot of pictures of the football players of the day, of some of the families who migrated to either the United States or to the Dutch Caribbean, were Aruba and Kiriso, because there you, they work at, at the refineries of Shell and Lago. And, and, and this is it. Uh, all of the various, the main, the main uh, views of the island, so that people can see the modern view when they come here, the modern buildings, and they can just go back in the book and uh, see how it used to be. And uh, I, I have a picture of the base, how it was before the terminal that we have here, and I have a picture of the terminal that was built in 1963. So I think it, uh, for somebody who um, wants to visit the island, this is a very good introduction to it and uh, a, a, a summary of the tradition, how the people used to live on an everyday basis. And I, I think it's, it's, it's what a tourist today is looking for. They, I, I feel that uh, sun, sand, and sea, you can have it in any island, 
but uh, the the cultural element the the human element is is very attractive also and this book will bring that to the reader We've been listening to Daniela Jeffrey. She is the author of her book, 1963, A Landmark Year in St. Martin, A Retrospective Look. Daniela, tell us how to get your book. Well, Exlibris is the, my main publisher, and also you can get him on Amazon and on all the major Amazon Barnes & Nobles and all the major uh, bookstores online. Uh, I have also um, a website, which is www.danielajeffrey.com, where you can buy uh, the book. I must say to your readers uh, that the book is also written in French, since I am uh, bilingual. Uh, and that, that the island is, is bilingual or trilingual, but officially bilingual. So I write in both languages. So people who know French can also acquire the book in French. It is also an e-book, and I will be having also an audio book in, uh, in, um, in English. So um, Ex Libris is my main, and Amazon, and you just go online, Google my name, and you'll have all the the uh, bookstores that sell my book. And this is the second edition of uh, the first book. That the first edition came out in 2003, and I have published and served three other books in both languages. Thank you very much, Daniela, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Yes. Uh, thank you, Steve, for inviting me and in this uh, radio program. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.